I said the Western blot is going to go the way of the dinosaur, but uh, it turns out that if you think about it, if you have someone who's EIA positive, so regular old third generation ELISA positive, and RNA negative, um, that person might be a leak controller or it might be a false positive EIA, that, that person would need a, a Western blot. So it won't entirely disappear. I mean, that's going to be a very uncommon thing, but, but there are, will be some people that may need a Western blot. So. Okay, good point. Uh, so before we start our next panel, I want to just remind you that IAS USA always supports charitable uh, organizations in terms of their fundraising. Uh, out front, there is the Five Loaves to Fish Foundation, which supports the uh, uh, Bickford Land Clinic in uh, Vietnam, which supports children and families with HIV. They're selling jewelry, scarves, other items. So uh, I know that a number of you bought things there so far, but it is a worthwhile cause. So uh, on your way out, make sure you take a look. The last session of the day is going to be a panel discussion. and. In addition to Joe Aaron and uh, Mike Sag, we have Steve Abbott, who is at Unity Healthcare and sees a large number of patients as an important uh, part of our uh, DC uh, initiative. We have Mark Siegel uh, at GW, which is an important part of the DC initiative and the uh, DC CIFAR, as well as uh, Susanna. To speak, uh, we are pleased to have a new faculty member here, a new Osanuzi. Uh, she trained in infectious disease at the University of Maryland, and is now the head of our clinical program for DC PVAP, working at Walker Jones and uh, DC General. But she's really the principal architect that has been responsible for our being able to recruit and retain our patients so well. So she is going to talk about some cases and uh, talk to the group here about uh, how they would manage these difficult problems. Anu, welcome to the course. Well, thank you. Um, I'd like to thank the organizers for giving me the opportunity to talk to you as an infectious disease provider about some of the management challenges um, in our co-infected patients regarding hepatitis C. And, you know, Susanna gave a brilliant um, talk on the promising agents that we have coming down the pipeline, but those are not going to be available, you know, in our co-infected patients for probably the next two or three years. And every day we have patients sitting in front of us that we have to make important treatment decisions on. And so some of the cases and issues I'm going to highlight, um, we've started the discussion already based on some of the um, things that came up in Susanna's talk. And over the next 30, 40 minutes, I'm just going to try and highlight those um, in more detail. So I have no financial disclosures. Okay. Um, so here are the learning objectives for my talk um, for uh, at the end of this talk, I hope you know the um, providers here will be able to effectively manage common HCV treatment-related side effects. Um, identify a framework for making treatment decisions in our patients with advanced liver disease, and recognize and effectively manage um, acute HCV in uh, co-infected patients. Okay, so this is just a practice question to see what um, most individuals out there are doing. So you have a patient with HCV in your office who has advanced liver disease. What would you usually do with those patients? Um, do you usually refer them to hepatology? Do you treat them? Um, do you evaluate them first and then refer them to um, hepatology for treatment? Um, just tell them to come back in a few years since we're going to have all these wonderful agents? Or do you refer them to clinical trials? Okay, um, so it looks that like 50% of individuals actually just evaluate the patients and do not treat them and just refer them to hepatology. Okay, um, so I'm just going to start with the first case. So this is a gentleman that is a 49-year-old African-American man with HIV hypertension, um, type 2 diabetes, and he just walks into your clinic saying, I want, I've heard about all these new agents and I want um, these new therapies for my um, hepatitis C. So um, when you, you know, talk to him a little bit further, he's recently released from prison, he's here to establish care, but his HIV is well suppressed on a regimen of boosted darunavir and Truvada with um, a CD4 count of about 412. So when you look at his HCV history, it looks like he was diagnosed about um, 10 years ago. He 
did use drugs in his 20s, um, but he quit about 18 years ago. So in the chart, his antibody positive, his PCR, his genotype um, are both unknown. He doesn't have any symptoms or um, signs of NCH liver disease. The only remarkable thing in his labs is that he has elevated transaminases, his ASC and ALT. Um, these are his other medications. His physical exam is essentially normal. So um, when you see him, which of these um, factors would be the most compelling reason for you to treat him now? Um, would it be his IL-28B genotype, um, his HCB genotype, his HCV viral load, or the stage of his liver disease? Great. So it looks like most people are listening to Susanna's talk. So I would, you know, agree that this is probably the most important um, factor that you need to know when you're evaluating this patient to decide if he needs treatment now or not. Um, I was wondering if the panel had any comments or what do they usually do in their practice when you know there's a new patient um, with hepatitis C. I mean, I, I think a lot of these. Uh would be pertinent, but I think the most important, in my opinion, is the stage of his liver disease. Um, I think uh, Suzanne had mentioned, um, you know, if you've got someone who's got minimal fibrosis, stage zero, one, or even two, you, you're, you're more likely to want to wait at this point than, than refer them or treat them now. And so I think it's an important part of the overall evaluation to know what stage, but obviously you're going to want to know what genotype they are, if they're genotype two. Uh, that's important because you might be more prone to treatment regardless of the stage. Um, you want to know, if, you know how high the viral load is. The IL-28B uh, might be important in someone that you're kind of on the fence about, but I think it's the least important of the three up or the four up there. Great. Um, any other comments? Or? Well, I mean, I think, and I think I completely agree with all of that. Um, and the one thing I know that a lot of HIV providers are very nervous about is the idea of waiting just because, you know, there is this general... Um, you know, understanding that HIV in patients do have more rapid progression of their liver disease. And obviously I showed this slide where they have more cirrhosis than their HCV mono-infected counterparts. And you know, I think that the timing of that progression, I think we still um, do not understand extremely well, especially in the highly active antiretroviral era. And I think the study that most people go to is the study from Hopkins, which was paired liver biopsies, where 25% um, uh, of patients, you know, in a three average figure period jumped by two um, stages of liver disease. Uh, but I think the, there are limitations to that, including the fact that at that center, as their providers will attest to, their liver biopsies um, are subpar because they're done by interventional radiologists. And so the sensitivity of those biopsies to begin with have a window basically of plus uh, one stage to begin with. And so I think, I'd certainly be interested to hear what you guys think, but I think in this era, given you know you basically have better therapies within three years, I would say that you should feel comfortable, but I wouldn't tell that patient to come back in three years. I'd still see them every six months and monitor them very closely to make sure I'm not missing something and that my non-invasive test wasn't wrong or whatever, but I think it's, you know, I think you can feel good about doing that in a co-infected patient these days. Yeah, just one final thing, uh, Susanna and Anu. Are we really going to care about IL-28 genotype in the future? I mean, it's an interesting research test. Maybe it tells you about biology, but is there any reason with the directly acting agents to be uh, uh, asking for this test? No. I actually don't worry about it now, so I don't think yeah. I'm going <laughs> to worry about it now. Okay. I mean, it doesn't provide anything useful in terms of what recommendation I'm going to make. I mean, if they happen to have a phenotype that is less responsive to treatment, I know that with no treatment, your chance of cure is zero percent. If you're TT, it drops further, but without treatment, you're not going to get cured. So what would you choose? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, clearly the whole story with IL-28B genotype was really based on PEG ribavirin data that if you, um, you know, were the unfavorable genotype CT or TT, you did poorly. But with the triple therapies, um, you see that a lot of that um, is mitigated by adding on a protease inhibitor. So while the rates of cure might be lower than you know, individuals that are CC, but clearly doesn't seem to matter as much. And with some of the DAA combinations or the interferon-free treatments, um, the IL-28 B genotype doesn't really matter. So do we agree, Suzanne, that IL-28 uh, B genotype is a research-only test from now on? I should set the stage just so everyone knows the disclosure is that that genotype was initially discovered at Duke University. 
Um, and I, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're looking to see whether she's objective. It costs about 350 bucks, and uh, and I will I will safely say that I do not use it in my practice. However, there are some providers that do, um, but I do not think that it is a critical decision point. Some people use it when they're on the fence, um, and a patient is really not sure. And I do think that it can give you some information about how many patients are going to get shortened courses of therapy because it clearly predicts response kind of therapy and viral kinetics, but it is not a critical tool. I wouldn't say that it's only a research tool either, but I do not think it's a critical tool used on a daily basis to make decisions about starting. And do the UNC people agree with the Duke people? <laughs> Pretty much on this one. I do have a question for new and, and for um, the panel. Do you, do you think it matters the order at which you get your HIV and your HCV? I've heard several people describe cases to me of HIV-infected people that get HCV, unlike your case, which might have been the other way around, and, and their HCV seems to progress abnormally fast. Um, That's actually comment? going to be one of the cases. Oh, OK. So you will have to leave. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> OK. Um, so let's just move on um, with this. OK. Good. Um, so, you know, with um, some of the slides Susanna had shown earlier, clearly in our co-infected individuals, HCV really matters. And the increased mortality risk that you see from HCVs clearly illustrated nicely in this slide. So this was a study done out of Mount Sinai by Andrea Branch, and, you know, they looked at 2,000 patients enrolled in a longitudinal study of the complications of ocular complications with AIDS. Um, about 2,000 patients followed for a mean for <coughs> about six years. And in, in individuals who actually had chronic hepatitis C, their mortality risk was increased down by 50% compared to patients who didn't have um, hepatitis C. And the other important thing um, in this study was they found that patients who had chronic hepatitis C, 20, over 20% 20 of the deaths in that cohort was actually liver-related um, compared to less than 4% in patients who didn't have um, you know, any HCV markers. And in this study um, done out of the Hopkins HIV clinic, looking at, um, I think, 638 patients followed for about six years, HCV clearly matters. But what matters, importantly, is you know, what your state of liver disease is. So there's actually a graded increase of clinical events looking at end-stage liver disease, um, hepatocellular carcinoma, and death um, from you know, patients that are fibrosis stage 2 um, and above. And the other thing they found out in this study was that treatment matters, clearly. Um, so patients who were treated and were non-responders, or patients who weren't treated at all, actually had similar rates of um, clinical events. What they did find was that patients who had a sustained virologic response or actually relapsed after therapy did not have any clinical events in the six years of follow-up in this study. So it's, it matters that you have hepatitis C, the stage matters, and clearly So this gentleman is evaluated, his, as expected, is African-American, so the chances that he would have the unfavorable genotype are high going in. So he's a, a CT um, genotype. His HCV genotype 1A, which is the most common um, subtype, and it's also the more difficult one to treat. His viral load is elevated, which we usually see in a lot of our, our black patients and our HIV-infected individuals as well, 6.3 million copies. So he undergoes a biopsy, um, and he has bridging fibrosis. His HIX4 is 3. Um, so he's a patient with advanced liver disease. And so what would you treat him with right now? Um, pegylated interferon-rectifarin, um, telapavate-based um, triple therapy, bostepravir. You'd wait um, for approval of the DAAs in HIV co-infected patients, um, which probably would be the next few years. Will you refer to a trial? Let me just say while you're answering that, that uh, Dr. Osanuzi has a trial for any of you in D.C. <laughs> and one arm, which we're particularly interested in uh, looking for, are people who are not on any retroviral therapy but are, uh, would like to be treated for their HCV. The second arm, which will open soon, will be for those already on any retrovirals. But we're eager to get both, and if you talk to her afterwards, she'll take your name and number and get back to you within 24 hours. <laughs> no pressure. Um, so this is great. 61% are actually going to refer to, to my trial. Um, but, um, so, but you know, there are a substantial amount of people. About 40% of people are going to treat um, with either telapavir or sepravir. So what would the panel um, like to do? Let's say, I mean, you actually don't also have a, a trial option. 
Dr. Abbott, you're the biggest reader. You, Dr. Siegel. And you're taking away my referral option? Our studies built. So the first thing I would do is explain my experience with a mono-infected patient. And it's been very mixed. I've been treating since the um, PS became available, and I used telapavir. And I've seen every adverse event in the uh, package insert. And so even though he was stage two or three, he needs treatment, but I'd find him a study somewhere. Um, my other concern, not just the side effects um, and the variable response, I'm also worried about the pill burden. And if it's telapavir, it's eight pills a day, including the ribavirin. And Truvada is blue, Ribopack is blue, and some people are telling me that they think their telapavir is blue. I think it's purple. They insist it's blue. But I've had medication errors when I do a dose reduction for the ribavirin. And the last thing I would want to happen is for a well-controlled HIV patient to lose control of their HIV because there's a medication error or because they stop taking all of their meds when they start dealing with some of these side effects. So even though you took away that option, I'm still sending yeah. them to you. <laughs> you know, and I do think, I mean, even if the option is still open, I mean, the truth is, if you look at all of the co-infected trials in the U.S., I mean, it's just maybe a, a couple of, maybe a thousand patients um, would be enrolled in trials with the ends that are available. And in D.C. alone, there are, you know, 18,000 patients who have hepatitis C. There are significant numbers of people who have advanced liver disease, so there are not going to be enough trials for everyone right now to enroll in. So we, I, I do think then I would pick number two. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I would also look for a trial hard far before I uh, try and actually get them, uh, get the insurance company to approve one of the DAAs because it is a huge amount of paperwork and often there's a checkbox HIV mono infected or HIV yes or no. And if you know you've checked that no, uh, if they're yes, you're, you're going to get denied. So, I mean, you can rely on, on, on samples that patients have returned and that's been. Um, a resource I've used once or twice, but um, in an ideal world where I had unlimited supplies, I would use two as well. So I'm curious as I look at this, how many of the 61% if their trial wasn't available would, would wait? I mean, I would be in that group. Uh, I would, I'm not really enthusiastic. He's got, a, he's got great F3 disease. It's bridging. That's not good. He's got some inflammation. That's not good. But he's genotype 1A. And even with Lapravir, or gonna, well, we're going to get to what you can and can't use based on his antiretroviral regimen in a minute, I suspect. But the the drug interactions are are difficult. The pill burden is tough. Putting up with interferons tough. The anemia from ribavirin, and I didn't calculate a MELD score, but off the top of my head, he's not that advanced. So you know, waiting a year, other trials may come along. I, I would lean towards that unless he's adamant about being treated now. So, you know, Susanna already um, went through this. I'm not going to go through the, you know, those um, study design for the telapter or studies in co-infected patients, but they were effective. Um, you know, the telapter studies, it was 74% compared to 45%, which is, you know, higher than what we usually would see with, um, you know, peg in, in that population. But with Pesepivir, 63% of those patients actually did um, achieve an SVR. Now, of importance is that, you know, these studies, there was no response-guided therapy. People got 48 weeks of of treatment, the ARVs that were allowed were, were you know, a little bit limiting, but clearly with the ongoing receptor telopter studies, we're allowing more ARVs, they're looking at more cirrhotic patients, they're looking at response-guided therapy as well. So, um, you know, that is still an option that is available right now, although as Steve and Mark did allude to in our co-infected patients in DC, it's a lot of paperwork to get a patient on treatment because it's actually not covered right now. Uh, but, you know, so this goes into the issue of the clinical trial. So this is actually courtesy of um, Susanna. So these, there are tons of, you know, trials for HCV-1-infected patients, but these are the current DAA trials in co-infected patients as of May 31st this year. So they're very limited. And a lot of them still do have the peg front ribavirin backbone. Um, there are really only two studies, um, you know, without interferon. So one is so phosphovir, ribavirin um, trials, and then the second one is the last um, um, row in, in, the, in, in this table, which is so phosphovir with GS5885, which is ledipasvir, 
Um, and that's the study going on right now at the NIH, which I had to plug. Um, okay. So um, Susanna went through this, so I'm not going to go through this again um, in, more, in much detail, but this is Simepivir, which is going to be approved later on this year. And you know, they've done, um, looked at um, this in co-infected patients. It's effective, however, it's effective, it's once a day, but you know, they're very limiting um, ARV combinations that you can use this regimen with. So um, this is just a research, research tool. So Susanna did go through some of the drug interactions with ARVs. I'm not going to go through that. But when you are trying to start patients on telapivir or bisepivir, hopefully with the newer agents, this database is also going to be updated. This is a very great resource that I use in clinic all the time. Because there are tons of medications from statins, um, antihypertensives that are, you know, you have significant drug interactions with, with the protease inhibitors. So um, this is just there for as a resource. So this gentleman, um, he has advanced liver disease. He talked to his primary care provider, and he, you know, he wants to be treated now. I mean, he's had friends who've undergone treatment. You try and discourage him, but he's scared um, of, um, you know, you know, the fact that he's advanced and he doesn't really know when these new agents are going to be available in co-infected individuals, and he wants to give it a try. So his ARVs were able to switch him um, to Raltegavir and um, Truvada. So he starts Telapavir. And he actually responds nicely. Um, at week four, his viral load is already undetected. He's gone from 5.1 million um, to less than 25 copies. Same thing at week six when he comes in. But his hemoglobin is now um, 9.6. He's dropped from 13.9 to 9.6. His ANC is dropping as well. And his um, you know, complaining of fatigue and weakness. So this is week six of treatment. He's actually doing well, um, but he's very tired and he's now anemic. So what would you do? Would you continue the current treatment? Would you continue the current treatment and add people, stop telapavir, um, reduce his ribavirin dosing, reduce the ribavirin dosing, you stop everything, um, or you reduce his PEG and ribavirin? So 56% um, of people are going to reduce right of right dosing. Um, does anyone want to chant on that on the panel? You said he's at week six? He's at week six, yeah. Yeah, I know that the data says to reduce the rubavirin and their um, anemia should start to recover, but I haven't seen it happen, so I've actually done both. So you, no, I start, I dose reduce the ribavirin, and then I go about getting the prior authorization for the EPO, so I have that available when he comes back in a few weeks and he's still anemic. Because okay. you got to get him to that 12-week point, and I'm not going to hold back on EPO because we're not sure how well it works. Andrew Siegel? I've done both, but I generally now just do four, and if done pretty well, I'll even reduce, you know, I'll reduce way down. I, I usually go from... If it's 600 BRD, I'll go to 600 once a day, and then if I need to, two weeks later, I'll reduce it even further. But I haven't prescribed epigen for over two years. So the question here in that in this particular case is he had a three gram drop in hemoglobin from 13.9 to 10.8 in four weeks, but I think the indication for dose reduction is 10. But wouldn't shouldn't we just have dose reduced in the week four in retrospect? Yeah, and actually, if you look at the study that I'm sure Anu is going to show us about this, what they, what they clearly did for the sites was that they dose-reduced at 10, 10 or a point where they knew they were going to reach 10, and so they dose-reduced before that. And I think rate of change is a critical time, and so I would, have, I would argue as well that given that three-fold three drop, that he should have been dose-reduced to 600 the time before, um, and then ultimately, maybe you can spare him the, the EPO, which comes with costs and other side effects. Absolutely true. And I think the only other thing I would say is to remember, although we hang on to this 12 weeks of telaprevir, that, that the advanced study in mono-infection, we don't have to say that in co-infection, but again, there's no reason to believe there's any difference, that, the, that, that eight weeks got you the bulk of the benefit from the telaprevir, and so that additional four weeks um, did bring some difference, which is obviously why it was in the phase three and, and, and ultimately in the, in the package insert. But you get a huge bang for the buck from the eight weeks. And so you have to really make a decision as to how much you're getting out of those other four weeks if you're having to admit the patient, transfuse them, or doing other things that I think all of us have had to deal with. 
I mean, and I think those are just all, you know, all excellent points. I mean, the, the rate of decline is very important. And so before you had our most dropped three grams, so, you know, probably, you know, started dose reducing them at that time. And there's actually no real, only one, you know, right answer. Some people actually reduce the peg interferon dose and right current dosing. Some people start equal at the same time. I mean, clearly what the studies have shown us, which I'm going to show in this slide, is there's been a big paradigm shift from when we were treating only with peg interferon and right interferon because clearly ribavirin dosing mattered. And people who you had to dose reduce with ribavirin, you actually had more relapsers. But with the protease inhibitors, whether you give people um, or you dose reduce ribavirin is just as effective. And so these are the post-epivirus studies. This is actually 500 patients who developed anemia. They were actually randomized to either dose reduction of ribavirin or you started EPOL. And overall, their treatment rates were exactly the same. And so, you know, there are complications and side effects of EPO. EPO is expensive, and so ribavirin dose reduction is pretty safe. And clearly, some people who have had more advanced liver disease, especially in cirrhotics, from some of the providers, I hear that, you know, they start them at lower doses of peg interferon because of the bone marrow effects as well, or, you know, dose reduce that as well. And I don't think that's, you know, uh, a wrong answer as well. So, this is, um, so we've agreed, you know, ribavirin dose reduction works. However, when you actually do that, it matters. And so this is data from the telapavir studies. And um, to the left, you have treatment-naive patients. And on the right, you have um, relapsers. And so if you dose reduce very early, like in the first four weeks, particularly in patients who are treatment experienced, it does appear that you have um, a slight reduction in your SVR rates. And what has been clearly shown in those studies is that if you actually still have detectable virus and you stop someone's ribavirin, none of those people are going to achieve a cure. So you still want to keep ribavirin on board. Um, if you can, dose reduce a little bit later. But if you can't, you do what you, you have to do. But clearly, if you have to dose reduce them very early, um, you might have a diminished, um, slightly diminished effect in your SVR rates. Okay. So now at week eight, so you dose reduce the ribavirin, he stabilizes somewhat. But now at week eight, he develops uh, an itchy rash that covers about 15% of his body surface area, mainly in his chest and his arms. It's he has no fever, no chills, no mucosal symptoms, no systemic symptoms really, and um, he comes in to see you. It's really just a macular um, rash. What would you recommend at this time to stop the telapavir because it's at week eight? And um, peg ribavirin. Actually, think it's a ribavirin rash. If you stop that and continue peg gamtilapavir, um, you reduce his peg dose. You give him high dose steroids. Give him topical corticosteroids and antihistamines. You stop everything until the rash subsides, and then you restart. Um, or you just stop everything permanently. Um, and great. Okay. So um, I'm just going to, because of the time, I'll just move on. Are the people from the workshop giving everyone else the answers? <laughs> you guys are doing extremely well. So, you know, it clearly has a, a mild to moderate rash, and I just put it out here to for us to discuss the management of rash. And, you know, mild to moderate rash really covers less than 50% of your body surface area. You don't have any systemic symptoms. And in those patients, it's fine to continue all drugs. You should never stop um, telapavir and start it again. Um, and, you know, usually just oral antihistamines, there's, there's a whole bunch of drugs you can give, or topical corticosteroids are fine. You never want to give systemic um, steroids really because of the drug interaction. So with prednisone, you can actually increase the prednisone levels three to four fold. With dexamethasone, on the other hand, you can significantly reduce telapavir levels, so it's not recommended that you do that. But the severe rash, um, you have to, if it's a severe progressive rash, you have to discontinue all medications immediately. And there was an FDA warning that was um, put in December 2012, really because there are patients who started developing signs of severe rashes, and they were still continued on medications, and there were actually deaths. And so the new FDA warning is that you stop combination therapy immediately in patients who have a rash with systemic symptoms or a progressive severe rash. And I also went on the ADRS website just to see, you know, what really has been reported in there since um, telepathy approval. And in the first year post-approval, there were actually 92 cases of TRES, which is 
um, drug rash with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms reported in that database and 20 cases of Steven Johnson syndrome. And rash was the top reported AE um, in, in over 952 um, cases reported in the AERS website online. Okay. So you get him through the rash. He's on um, steroids and antihistamines. And now he's at week 22. He's remained suppressed through um, week six. He wants to stop treatment. Remember, he's a, a stage three patient. Um, what would you recommend? Would you stop him now at 22 since he's done so well? Um, would you keep continuing the PEG ribavirin through week 48, stop at week 24, stop the ribavirin alone, um, or you reduce the doses and continue treatment? Any comments? Susanna, what would you do? Yeah, we were just having this discussion. Mark and I are going to disagree on this one now. <laughs> I, I mean, I, my, since he was undetectable week four, um, and presumably week 12, I would probably get him to week 24 and then stop him. I know Susanna's going to have a difference of opinion with me. Yeah, and I think this is more about uh, what, what, what do we believe is the right answer and what do we say we should do given the data, right? So I think you, you commented already that we don't have quote-unquote response-guided data for the management of a co-infected patient. I still have made it very clear that I feel strongly that there's no difference, and yet, in this patient, I think I would encourage him to attempt to complete a full 48 weeks of treatment. Um, I, the one thing that I think we all recognize is this patient has had severe liver disease. He's stage three by biopsy. We always argue that you can that you can be downstaged by one, so the problem is the sensitivity of the liver biopsy. So with stage three, I always treat as a stage four. Um, and so I think you, if you can get him 24 weeks of treatment, his chance of cure is probably very good. But I would argue the more he can get, the better until we know the right answer, know the answer from phase three studies. So it's a conservative answer for sure. Not to be cynical, but if he's my patient and he's coming and telling me he wants to stop, he's probably already stopped. <laughs> <laughs> no, you I, I would be him through the treatment and holding his hands and getting him through so he's still on treatment. I think if we ask them to continue, then we should start peg as well so we can have sympathy. Okay. You know, and I think what Susanna is actually alluding to is, is some of this data. So clearly, um, you know, these are patients treated with either telapavir or and these are these patients that are doing well. So these are patients who have an extended rapid biologic response, meaning they were negative at week 4 and negative at week 12 with telapavir or week 8 and 24 with lisoprevir. So these are the you know, selected patients who are actually responding really well on treatment. And what you can see is if you did response-guided therapy, thanks, Susanna, um, or um, you treated them for 48 weeks, there was clearly a benefit of keeping them on longer. Now, these are cirrhotic patients, um, you know, from 61% to 92% um, with, um, with telapavir or 75 to 92% with lisoprevir. So clearly in the cirrhotic patients, the package inserts you treat for 48 weeks regardless of you know, the, 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 the fact that they have, you know, very rapid on um, treatment viral kinetics. Now with stage three, it's not as clear because when you look at the data in all patients have advanced liver disease, it seems like it doesn't really matter. And I would say that is, you know, maybe in the stage three patients, but clearly patients are cirrhotic. Um, and some people treat the stage three as cirrhotic. So um, I think you can just, you know, give him the information and he will decide when. Okay, so let's just really move on now to the next case, which are my most difficult patients that I see in clinic. So these, this is a 58-year-old African-American lady who has HIV and hepatitis C. She's genotype 1A, high viral load. She was biopsied in 2006. She was stage 3. She was biopsied two years ago. She's stage 4. Um, she's on, you know, um, Reotaz um, Truvada. She's been drug-free for two years, but occasionally, you know, like once every other week, um, she has like, you know, one glass of wine. Um, she was treated in 2007 and stopped treatment after 10 weeks um, because she was, you know, deemed a non-responder. And the other issue is she could never really tell you how much ribavirin she was taking. Um, so it's not really clear in the chart either. She had some adherence issues, but at that time, you know, she was, you know, still using on and off. So her treatment at that time was complicated with mild anemia, fatigue, insomnia, depression. So these are her labs. Um, clearly, um, she has 
signs of you know, advanced liver disease, health human is 3.3, 1.3 INR, um, is off, creatinine is slightly elevated, platelets are down. But she's neurotic. Um, so what would you want to do prior to treatment? Um, you know, get an ultrasound, um, endoscopy, you refer to a transplant program, refer her to alcohol abstinence program before you even make the decision about treating her. And I'm just going to ask another question. Um, so she's been, you know, alcohol-free somewhat for the last two years. Um, would you re-biopsy her again since she was just biopsied in 2011? Well, I think she did several of the things that you um, put on the first slide. Um, certainly an ultrasound or an MRI um, to make sure she doesn't have hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, probably, I, I mean, I don't know how, um, whether you already know if she has varices or not, but, but certainly an endoscopy would uh, make sense. And then if you were going to treat her, um, it seems to me that her liver disease is advanced enough that you'd want to have a transplant at least considered uh, for her. So, um, and I can't remember what the fourth choice was, but, um, and then I, I, I may be missing a subtlety here. I, I can't think of a reason to rebiopsy her, but, but perhaps there's um, something that I'm missing. That's actually not, that's what I was trying to allude to. No, there would not be any indication to rebiopsy this patient. And I think you brought up all the issues in our, you know, that we need to watch out for in our cirrhotic patients. Clearly, patients that are cirrhotic, it's reported that they decompensate at the rate of 67% a year. Um, and, you know, also beyond the decompensation, there are clearly complications with cirrhosis, and one of them is HCC. And so depending on which study you look at, it's suggested that 2 to 6% of those patients are going to develop HCC in a year. So you clearly want to do imaging studies, whether you do AFP or not is debatable. But you want to, you know, um, look at that every um, six months in these patients. And then the other issue is variceal bleeding. So 35 to 85 percent of cirrhotics have varices, and 30 percent of those varices are at high risk of bleeding. And the death rate from the first bleed, the index bleed, is actually 50 percent. So clearly, if patients, um, you know, have varices, you want to know and you know treat them appropriately. But the other issue is, you know, patients are at risk of decompensation when you treat them as well. So you want to have, you know, a transplant back up and, you know, they're seeing a hepatologist as well. So those are all very important. And I just put this slide out here to highlight the fact that in our co-infected patients, and this is a study of about 1,800 patients, when you compare them to mono-infected patients, once they decompensate, their median time of survival is actually 16 months compared to patients who are mono-infected, which is about 48 months. And that's also, in, you know, part of that is also that once patients decompensate, they need transplants that... In the U.S., I think it's only about 20 centers that transplant um, co-infected patients at this time. So locally, I do not believe we have any, apart from, you know, Hopkins. That is, I'm not even sure if they're doing that right now. And the University of Maryland has started doing some. But at Georgetown, which is our main transplant center, we refer most of our mono-infected patients to, they do not transplant co-infected patients. So I don't know what, if in UNC or... They don't, they, don't, they don't at UNC. I don't know if they've... I know they're talking about it at Duke, but I don't think they've transplanted any co-infected patients yet. So. Dr. Saab, do they do that in? No, not yet. But with this new law, hopefully they will. They're ready to go. Any remarks, comments? I agree with Dr. Aaron. I mean, I would do an MRI of an endoscopy at least initially, and then maybe as a uh, follow-up studies, yearly ultrasounds. With, um, but I wouldn't start when, with an ultrasound as a screening for hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, and I would do pretty much all of the others. I would I would send them for an endoscopy, and um, and refer them to a transplant center if I thought I was going to be treating them. Does anybody on the panel do AFPs anymore? I do. In someone who I know has cirrhosis, I will still do them. I know it's controversial, but if 
you get a markedly elevated AFP over 500, I think it's pretty diagnostic. I think you get a lot of them in the 50s to 100 range. And then if you get an MRI that's normal, you know, you don't really know what to do with that. I know the ASALD is recommending against doing them, but I still, in a cirrhotic patient, I'll still check them. Does anybody else on the panel do them? I do them because often MRIs require prior authorization. And when I start throwing out terms like elevated AFP, the person at the insurance company will say, OK. <laughs> Very practical. <laughs> um, I'll just, you know, quickly move on um, with this case since I'm actually running out of time. So um, she's her she's a child QA. Her MEL score is 11. Um, her imaging studies she doesn't have HTC. She has melanomegaly, which you can already know from her platelets being low. She doesn't have viruses, but she does have portal gastropathy. She's seen by the transplant team. She's not a candidate for transplant right now. She's her MEL score is a little too low. Um, and what, what is the major challenge of triple therapy in this patient that bothers you the most? Okay. Any thoughts from the panel? So a majority of people are concerned about hepatic decompensation and then the high rate of AEs in these patients. I think you should, we could just focus on the things that are probably less of a concern, and that would be uh, development of protease resistance and limitation of future options. And otherwise, the rest of them are pretty applicable. Yes. Um, and so you know, this patient, as I said, you know, she's a very challenging patient right now because they're. This is a patient who has very advanced liver disease. And when you look at the telapavir studies, in patients who were null responders, um, based on staging, um, if you look at patients who are cirrhotic, treating them with telapavir was only about 14% of patients that actually achieved a cure compared to 10% with pegrafurin. So you know, the chances that triple therapy are going to work in this very difficult patient is, is, is very um, minimal. And um, I put this out here because I think that's the initial question asking what people do with advanced liver disease patients goes into this because triple therapy has a lot of adverse events. And when you look at the real world data in cirrhotic patients, you can see why a lot of providers are very concerned. And so this is data out of France. So this is a French expanded access program. And they've had you know, over uh, almost about 600 patients now with cirrhosis, um, compensated cirrhotics, who they put on either telapavir or bisoprevir. But all you can see here is that over 50% of those patients had serious adverse events. Um, the risk of decompensation was about 3%. Um, you, you know, people did die. And when you look at the use of EPO, it's almost like 60% of those patients are on EPO. You know, they have high transfusion needs, and um, it's 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 a very difficult population to treat. And this is panned out in many different um, populations that they've looked at. In US data, it's almost 76% of those patients have serious adverse events. Same thing in Australia, same thing in you know, other parts of Europe. So it's very challenging treating cirrhotic patients with triple therapy. Now, you know, as Dr. Sag alluded to, this is um, some of the data that Dana showed. So some people are concerned about limiting her future options and she'll develop radiation resistance mutations. Which is true. So a lot of patients who fail therapy who are non-responders will develop protease inhibitor um, mutations, but it doesn't really matter because now we have so many classes of drugs coming down the pipeline. And you know, if you're not using a protease-based regimen down the line, um, you can come up with you know two DAA regimens that would work just fine. So this is the um, data with daphnasivir and sofosfavir with or without ribavirin that Susanna had alluded to. And these were telapavir or failures. And 50% of these patients, two years out, still had resistant mutations, but it didn't matter. So their own viral genetics and their treatment response rates were very high. So even if she does fail, um, she'll have options down the line. Okay. So she, you decide to retreat this patient. Would you administer an interferon challenge or stress test? Yes, no. You already did that, right, though? Didn't you say she was a null responder? 
So, so she was a normal responder, um, in the, with the caveat that she, you don't really know she was taking her ribavirin much. Um, you don't really know what her appearance was back then. Mm -hmm. um, but she, it's documented in the chart that she's a non-responder. Mm. Yeah, I wondered um, about. Um, I had I have heard that sofosavir is available uh, as, as a single use uh, compassionate access drug um, currently. Do you know if that's true, and would that be your approach with this patient? Or? So we, um, I know that you know, in some patients who are, um, you know, post transplants, but we haven't really been able to, to get that. I don't know if anyone has had Does access. Does anybody know if that's use. available uh, on a compassionate basis? I mean, I know Gilead is thinking about doing that, but I yeah, really the person who knows left. Yeah. She's the one that told me that it was that because we have a patient almost identical to this one. We're, we're trying to get it. Um, but um, I would have said no, but I guess your point is um, that um, perhaps she never really took it. So um, uh, I, don't know, I don't see exactly how it would really change what you're going to do. Um, yeah. well, tell us what the interferon challenge uh, is. So really, that's just using the leading phase. So I think that was you know, one of the points um, Susanna had made, that you know, in some of these individuals, you can use the leading phase um, of just giving peg interferon ribavirin to see what their interferon sensitivity is, especially if you're not sure, um, and then decide if you're going to go on the treatment. So these are this this is telapavir data. So they you know gave four weeks and then they started telapavir um, um, dosage in this patient. So there are some of them that were prior normal responders, like this lady. But clearly at week four, if you had more than a one log decline. Um, you know, 54% of these patients still achieved a, a sustained biologic response. However, if you were less than one log, it's less than 15%, and I would even argue it would be lowering her because she's cirrhotic. But um, so using, you know, using their interferon responsiveness as a way of deciding if you're going to continue treatment in some of these patients might be important as we make treatment decisions. I mean, you could argue, right, this might actually be a patient where you get a IL-28B test, because um, uh, if she was CC, then she probably didn't take her uh, interferon ribavirin before, and, and, and maybe that would be as useful as this particular. Yeah. Uh, so. Okay. so she didn't really respond at all. Um, she went down to 1.5 million. Copies that week four, we discontinued treatment, and she's waiting for the DAA so Did you do DOT? How did you knew, know she took it this time? No, we didn't, but um, we just, you know, <laughs> followed her very closely, and she'd come to clinic. I mean, because this is a very advanced patient, so we're seeing her almost, you know, every week. Um, and that's what she was reporting. Um, so, you know, just key issues in a cirrhotic patients, you want to manage them very closely with hepatology. I, I do not think you do the patient the best service as infectious disease providers totally solely managing a cirrhotic patient and starting them on treatment without having um, some backup support from hepatology or transplant. So you want to screen for HCC, as we said, you know, significant, um, you know, it's about two to six, well, two to three percent of those patients are going to have HCC. Um, once every year, you want to do very cell surveillance, refer them very early to transplant, even before, you know, clearly before they start having any um, episodes of um, decompensation, even though most times it's a lot of paperwork to get any patients to see transplant, and they're going to say, no, right now they're compensated, but they're in the system. So if something happens when they're on treatment, they're already in the system, and you can refer them there. Um, and you just want to ensure some of these other things. So let me just get to my last case. So this is a 61-year-old um, Caucasian male who, in July, um, had acute HIV seroconversion symptoms. He had, you know, some lymphadenopathy, a, a little faint rash, um, fever, um, and his last HIV test was two months earlier. So um, he comes into the Southside Clinic. His HIV viral load is tested. It's 240,000 um, copies. Um, he has negative ABC serologies. Then in September, he's seen at this outside clinic with fatigue, jaundice, dark urine, his ALT, ASD, and the thousands. Um, daily is elevated, alpha is elevated. His HCV antibody test was actually initially negative, 
Um, and then we came, they repeated it two weeks later, and it was, it was positive. They didn't do any viral load at that time. So he now comes to see us a month later um, with a viral load of 24 million, his genotype 1B. His transaminases have you know, gone down significantly. Um, so what is the most important next step prior to considering therapy in this patient? Would you want to do an out 20 AB genotype, recheck his labs, get a liver biopsy, endoscopy, ultrasound, screen for additional liver diseases? Okay. Any comments? I would have actually done number two. Um, although I'm not sure the time frame is right. I mean, you want to make sure that if someone has, if you can document roughly when they convert and you want to see what their viral load is at week 8, slant, eight to 12, um, there is a certain amount, 15%, that might spontaneously seroconvert. And if they haven't seroconverted at that point, there's some um, pretty strong data that treating them early within the first six months of a seroconversion, you're going to have much higher rates of... Uh, of SVR. So I assume that that three to five weeks was because we were kind of in that time frame looking at week 12. Exactly. So I mean, he, so this is one month after his symptoms. So this is like four to six weeks after his initial symptoms. I mean, his exposure was probably, you know, a couple of weeks before that. So he's still within that first 12 week time frame. I guess some people did choose the L28B genotype because you're thinking, okay, his uh, favorable genotype, there's data to suggest that you might clear the infection. Um, more, um, but he is at week four and he's 24 million. So, um, any other comments from the panel? So, his HCV seroconversion happened how soon after his HIV diagnosis? So, he was HIV, so he became HIV positive in July. So, in September, it looks like he acquired hepatitis C. I want right to know why, I want to know how. Oh, um, no, 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 I mean in general. I would go back and do a psychosocial history. Is there something, is he depressed? Is he acting out? Is he picked up new habits since he got diagnosed with HIV? He was and a gentleman who picked up significant high-risk habits when he turned 60. So if it's if it's if he's acting out due to depression, I'm not sure how quickly I will pull the trigger on interferon and ribavirin. I mean, I think we may need to address the psychosocial situation first. Um, I mean, he could have acquired them simultaneously, mm -hmm. right? Because the... Sure because the uh, incubation time, or whatever you want to call it, for hep C is longer. I, I don't know if you um, uh, told us he was hep B negative. Certainly I would want to be sure he was hep B negative, because certainly those AST, ALT levels, um, uh, certainly consistent with hep C, but certainly more consistent with acute hep, hep B. So I, I don't know. I might have missed it. I can't quite see the slide that well from this angle. So. Um, no, I certainly. So, yeah, so you're right. So when he got diagnosed with HIV, his A, B, and C serologies were all negative, and then he had this, you know, um, the symptoms later on in September. So we're thinking it's um, probably the time frame from July to September. He had acquired acute hepatitis C back in July. Um, these symptoms now with the transaminases are probably due to something new. But we did, I didn't put that on the slide, but we did check for hepatitis B was still negative, DNA, nothing. Yeah. So it was really acute hepatitis. Um, and um, so in, in this population, as I said, um, it, there have been many HCV outbreaks, in, in, especially in men who have sex with men, and these are just some of the reported outbreaks. And increasingly, every you know, uh, a couple of months, you see in an infectious disease journal, there are more reports of HCV outbreaks, particularly in men who have sex with men. Um, and you know, what Mark was alluding to is that you know, clearance of of HCV usually happens within the first 12 to 16 weeks. Now, there have been cases that have been documented to have cleared 24 weeks out. But in this study of about 61 patients, 51 patients that had um, you know, acute um, symptoms, um, when you look at them, all the people that cleared, cleared before the first 16 weeks of, of um, you know, infection. And none of the patients in this study that were asymptomatic actually the hepatitis C, but that probably does happen because it's under-recognized and we really don't know when people acquire infection. So those first 12 weeks, a significant amount of people, well, not a significant, about 15 to 20 percent are going to clear. In co-infected individuals, it's a little lower, 10 to 15 percent, um, but if it's going to happen, it's going to happen early. 
Um, and this patient, um, so two, two months later, so this is about four months from his initial symptoms, he's seen us in clinic, and sorry the slides aren't showing, um, projecting too well, but we biopsied him and he actually had stage three disease. Um, so you can see the, the but you can see fibrotic bridges, um, especially in the mason, mason staining and his stage three. And this has been reported um, several times in literature out of New York. Um, Daniel Herr, I think he had a case, like 11 cases of patients who actually rapidly progressed. And there's actually a CID report just this month, actually in June, about four patients in New York who went from um, primary HCV infection to decompensation and death from a time frame of 17 months to six years on average. And so these were typically patients who are HIV infected that had lower CD4 counts when they acquired their primary um, HCV infection. And um, you know, three of them did die. They decompensated and died. One was able to get a transplant. But these patients went from primary infection to death within 17 months um, to 17 months to six years um, of acquiring hepatitis C. So we do see this. So in this patient, you know, assuming that he um, he wants to be treated or maybe not, um, what would you suggest for his management? So this is he's about six months. No, actually, it's about four months out. Um, at this point, when you see him and biopsied him, he has stage three fibrosis. Would you treat him? Um, would you treat him with pegintofurin alone with rapamycin um, triple therapy? Part of at the presentation yesterday. So, um, so this is, um, you know, so with acute hepatitis C, there have been many studies. In our mono-infected patients, pegintofurin alone would, you know, is sufficient. Pegintofurin with ribavirin clearly works. And these are um, studies in co-infected patients using pegintofurin and ribavirin, and you have on average um, cure rates of anywhere from 50 to 80 percent if you get them within and start treatment within those first. Uh, you know, six, around week 16, so it's it's really, you know, fairly effective. Some studies are 24 weeks, some are 48 weeks. Um, but I think this was interesting data that came out of Croy this year from Daniel um, Ferrer's group in New York. And this was looking at 40, there are actually 40 um, um, HIV-infected men who developed acute hepatitis C, and he decided to treat 20 of them. And in those 20, um, the thought behind it was that you usually treat pegravivirin for 24 weeks, this is just 12 weeks of triple therapy in this patient. And what he found was, you know, the end of treatment response rates, the SVR4 rates were very impressive, about 84, um, 85%. Now, what you must note is that a significant amount of those people were the CC genotype. So it's possible some of those individuals will have cleared on their own. But regardless, that was, you know, promising data that came out of Croy. So it looks like you know, part of the individuals are going to do that here. Now this is my last slide. Can, can um, I can I make an argument though? I mean, seventy-five percent, seventy-eight percent is worse than what you will do with sofosfavir. Um, I mean, let's say it wasn't stage three. Let's say you had an acute person and they don't drop their RNA by you know several logs, and so it looks like they're going to become um, chronically infected. Why would you treat them with during acute infection? Why not? Wait for sofosfavir, treat him for 12 weeks, um, and have a 90% cure rate, uh, as opposed to giving them telapavir and all its toxicity and pills and everything else. I, I don't. I, I think the the logic behind treating acute HCV uh, doesn't really hold water now. Um, yeah, I mean, and I totally agree with you. And I think you know, for each patient that you know that that I see or or that we see, we have to let them know what all their options are. So this is still an option that some individuals might be willing to take. Um, it's 12 weeks of treatment, and you know there are people who do okay on treatment and want to be treated now um, versus waiting. A significant amount of my patients that are early, we wait, and we also have the benefit of you know having clinical trials. So I, I really don't treat too many early. Yeah, but the advantage of treating acute infection before we had DAAs is is you had a response rate that was twice as high as as um, uh, in chronic infection, now I don't. I, there is, I, I don't see the advantage of, of treating people because because your response rates will actually be higher 
um, you know, six or eight months from now, actually six months from now, when when subfosfor is available, um, um, right? Available if we can get it for our co-infected patients. But well, some would argue that you know, 85% is, is 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 a good rate. I mean, if you look at Daniel's data, I mean, and it depends. I mean, I think it depends on which populations of patients you're talking to. Mm -hmm. Clearly, some of our you know patients in different populations are a little bit more aggressive about treatment. They want to be treated right now, um, but you know. What I wanted to highlight is, you know, the populations that you see some of these studies going on, particularly men who have sex with men, reinfection rates are actually really high. Well, so, that, yeah, that's a whole separate. I mean, yeah. reinfection is a yeah. huge problem. Right? Yeah. I agree with that. Um, yeah. and, and this rapid progression thing is really very interesting. And whether that has to do with the disrupted, you know, um, uh, gastrointestinal immune system and and and. Uh, HIV-infected patients who then become Hep C-infected. I think that's important. But I'm just saying that you know that we just went on and on about how hard it is to give someone to lapavir and how many side effects there are. And, and I mean, you know, sofosfavir, as best I can tell, has has no greater uh, toxicity than placebo, right? I mean, in, in mm -hmm. the control trials. So, so I mean, treating them today versus six months from now. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I certainly wouldn't treat an acute HCV-infected patient today. Um, I would wait. Um, uh. I, I totally agree with that as well. Um, so I just wanted to highlight this slide um, talk um, paper which came out in AIDS just this last month that reinfection it's actually very high, and this just goes to the fact that we have to look at more HCV prevention strategies in our very high risk population of patients. So this was out of England, and it was 144 patients that were studied in this clinic who actually had acute hepatitis C. A significant amount of them were treated or they spontaneously cleared, and the reinfection rates were actually 20% of those people got reinfected within three years. And on top of people who got reinfected, another 20% of those got reinfected a third time, even if they cleared or they were treated. So, you know, in patients that are very high risk, I mean, with DAAs, I guess you just keep giving, um, you know, sofosfavir and ribavirin and just, you know, treat them over and over again, but clearly we also have to focus on HCV prevention strategies. So that is my last talk. He, uh, he did not want to be treated reasonably because of the interferon toxicity. He was counseled, was started on, you know, um, you know, a triple for his HIV, and he's awaiting DAA therapy right now, which will be available soon. So just want to skip this. I do not have to do this back to participate, and that is the end of my presentation. Thank you. Are there in the panel? Uh, thank you very much for. Uh, yes? You do need the last question, okay? Let's ask, answer the last question. I've been overruled. All right, so you were able to change behavior slightly here. Uh, yeah. So again, thanks to the panel uh, and uh, to Anu for some interesting cases. Uh, just a couple of things, then Mike and I have uh, just a couple of quick summaries. But again, thanks to IAS USA for coming to Washington. They've been doing this for many years. And on your way out, please encourage them to continue to come to Washington. Uh, look at the uh, jewelry that uh, supports the orphanage in Vietnam. But I think at this session, Again, we'd like to hear from you about what you want to hear about next year. But I think we've heard a number of interesting talks about where we should what, at least think about neurocognitive issues. Victor Valcor brought some interesting issues where we don't have any interventions for prevention or treatment now directly for the HIV. But something I think to keep our eye on, see if Mike has a different idea. I think we got some very interesting uh, uh, concepts about the future for once-a-day integrase inhibitors. Uh, and the effects of cobastatin and uh, some of the newer drugs on renal function. Uh, the issues about uh, tenofovir and renal function, I think, were uh, uh, clearly articulated by uh, uh, Christina Wyatt. And I think that the issue about HCV we're going to have to continue to focus on here because this is going to be an issue. And one of our goals for the DC uh, program is to try to get directly acting agents into the hands of uh, providers who are not infectious disease specialists to see if we can have a larger impact on liver disease and community. This will depend on getting the drugs approved. 
this will depend on finding a way to pay for these drugs, but we're hoping that we can make DC a model for that. So Mike, you have the final word on what you think we've learned from this. Okay. Well, I, I agree. I think that uh, you did a nice summary of the talks that we heard. I'd like to just, again, commend all of you in, in the area for doing such a great job with your Center for Age Research and coming together as a community. Uh, that's going to uh, really set the stage for some excellent impact on the epidemic here over the next decade and beyond. Um, I'd like to thank all the audience for being here, remind you that it's really important to fill out your evaluations. We really uh, pay close attention to those, especially for future talks or topics that you wanted to hear about, maybe we didn't have time this time, things that you think are going to be emerging over the next year, besides the fact that there's going to be a lot of new hepatitis C drugs, um, you can say that too. Uh, but that's really important for us. And uh, I'd like to thank the staff of the IASUSA for uh, really doing a great job, as always. And uh, hopefully we'll see you back uh, next year. Thanks very much.